0: Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Osden, Washington Editor.
1: Steven Hansen, Associate Editor.
2: And Josh Berlin, Head of Business Development.
1: Brexit
0: is behind us, thank goodness. So what's Europe's next act? That's the theme of our annual BioEquity Europe Conference. We're in our 21st year, We usually pick a super cool destination somewhere in Europe, usually in an old castle or some other cool place. But this year, we're going to do an even cooler place, the Internet. It is going to be an all-digital event in our 21st year because there is a pandemic going on. We've got Josh Berlin here to tell us a little bit about the conference. We've just opened registration. And of course, Stephen Hansen, our man in the UK, who covers Europe for biocentury, is going to chime in on what he's seeing on the ground in Europe in biotech lately. Josh, tell us a little bit about the conference.
2: Yeah, thanks, Jeff, and I appreciate joining you guys today. We will be having our event May 17th to 19th. As Jeff mentioned, it will be a digital event. We'll have many of the things you expect from an in-person event, strategic panels, company presentations. We will have one-to-one virtual networking via EBD Group, our partner. And then we'll also have an exclusive conference report from McKinsey looking at the biotech ecosystem in Europe. We're also going to have plenty of opportunities for digital networking. You can find out more on our website, which is bioequityeurope.com. We have open registration. If you register by February 19th, there is an early bird rate. And in particular, we are looking for biotechs to present. So if you're either a European biotech that wants to present, or if you are a U.S. or Asian biotech that is interested in the European opportunity, there is opportunities to present. Please check out the website. And we are now developing the agenda, so it's a great time to get involved. The agenda is always around a theme. This year's theme is Europe's Next Act. And the idea is that European innovators have really paved the way for the world's first COVID-19 vaccines, What's coming next from Europe's academic and biotech leaders? Where is biopharma innovation headed in Europe? What innovation are investors funding? What are Europe's top partnering deals? How will the UK's split with the EU work for both parties? Where are the opportunities there? And a lot more. We're really looking forward to an exciting virtual discussion this year.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Josh. So, of course, you're mentioning BioNTech, the German biotech. MRNA vaccine. And of course, Oxford University and AstraZeneca have been partnered up to develop a vaccine as well. Stephen, when you think about Europe's next act, what comes to mind for you?
1: Just going off what Josh said, I think one of the interesting things is that the interest in life sciences, is that the the pandemic and some of the, the work that the industry has done that interest level is just as clear in Europe, I think, as it is in the U.S. If you just look at the VC funds that are raising money, pretty much every VC fund, whether it's LSP or Sophie Nova Partners, Forbion and Dare Partners, there's pretty much anyone you can think of has been raising record funds. And just to Josh's point about the international interest in Europe, the LPs that are getting involved in these funds are also pretty widespread. We're seeing investors from Asia, Middle East, I even spoke to a VC where they've got African money coming in. There's pretty widespread interest in the sector and getting into these companies. And so I think that's one real highlight for Europe going forward here is that a lot of the folks that are going to be investing in the early stage innovation are are flush with cash. And so we should see a lot of good stuff coming out of there.
0: How about the M&A cycle, Stephen? Is that showing any signs of slowing down?
1: No, there's been fairly steady. I would say M&A cycle. I don't know if it's been as rampant as what we've seen in the U.S., but there are companies. For instance, we just had a story about Servier and what they've been doing on the partnering and BD side to build out their oncology business. Servier is what you might think of if you're a casual observer as an old French sort of specialty pharma company that was long in CV and diabetes, but now been six years through BD and and some of the many transactions like acquiring Symphogen acquiring Shire's oncology business and pending acquisition of the Agios business. They've really built up a fairly formidable pipeline in oncology, and those sorts of things I think should keep ticking along.
0: And I suppose it's not a surprise that when they went to pick a headquarters in the U.S., they picked Cambridge, Massachusetts, which obviously is one of the U.S. hotbeds. Josh, as you've been working to set up the BioEquity Europe conference, are there any trends that you've been noticing that you see as themes for this year? Yeah, good
2: question, Jeff. So one thing we really think with the digital event this year is, although it will certainly be focused on on Europe like it has been for the last 21 years, it's also an opportunity to really globalize the meeting. We are expecting record attendance from both U.S. biotechs and investors, as well as Asian biotechs and investors, and in particular, related to Asia, we will have for the first time this year at BioEquity, a China-Asia roadshow track. These are China biotechs, Korea biotechs, and so forth that are looking for opportunities in Europe. It's an opportunity for us to really expand who attends the meeting this year, and, and we're getting a lot of really positive feedback from our friends in Europe about that who are looking for global partners.
0: Excellent. Stephen, you mentioned Servier. Are there any other companies you're watching that, I don't know if you'd call them bellwethers or perhaps weather vanes as to where Europe's biotech next act is headed?
1: Yeah, I think there's the main ones, obviously, that sort of immediately spring to mind are Genmab or Argenix or Galapagos, these companies that have their roots firmly planted in Europe, but have sort of global sort of ambitions and global footprints, or they're starting to grow these global footprints. And the hope, I think, is that with all of this VC capital coming in and funding these companies even better, they'll be in a position where they can follow in the footsteps of these companies, where they've initially sought European listings that then they've used to position themselves better for attracting international investment. And so hopefully, you know, with things like bioequity, I think we've seen a lot of the U.S. money come and try and find those, what maybe 10 years ago were diamonds in the rough that are no longer unheard of or hidden companies, but now are are pretty commonly well known.
3: What do you think will be the impact of BioNTech and CureVac, other European companies that, as Jeff said in the beginning, have really been standouts in the COVID-19 vaccine development race?
1: I would hope that there will be some sort of a halo effect, in particular in Germany. That's a place where there's been, if you look across the different countries in Europe, it's probably one of the places where I would say there's been a bit of a lag. You haven't seen the same maybe progression as a whole in the German biotech sort of ecosystem as you have in places like France or in the Benelux or the UK, I'm hoping that what we've seen with CureVac and BioNTech, which were both backed by billionaire investors rather than your sort of more traditional VC funds, I'm hoping that creates something of an effect where we start to see a bit more of an ecosystem get established there.
0: Josh, thank you, Stephen, thank you. I'm excited for the conference this year, but let's head to DC where a new report from Representative Katie Porter is making waves in biopharma circles. Steve, tell me a little bit about what is in this report.
3: So the report is a compilation of criticisms of pharma practices, drug pricing, stock buybacks, a lot of the things that Democrats in Congress and honestly a lot of Republicans, including those who are in the Trump administration, have been making for years. But there's a new element, I think, in this report, which is that it includes and is really targeted at criticizing m and And it calls for the FTC and Congress to make it harder for pharma companies to acquire each other. I think that there's two aspects to that. I think many people in industry would agree with the criticisms of big company mergers, that they destroy value and suppress innovation in many cases. The thing that really concerns industry, I think, is that Porter attacks the acquisition of small companies by large companies and recommends making these kinds of acquisitions much more difficult. If she succeeds in doing that, that would fundamentally change the entire biopharma ecosystem, and I would argue, would really suppress innovation. It would really bring the progress that we've had for the last couple of decades to a halt. Yeah. see a lot of disappointed
0: VCs as well, as that's one of the primary exits for them as they fund all this innovation. It's not just
3: disappointed VCs, it's the fact that then you wouldn't see VCs investing in new company formation. I don't think that there's anybody shedding tears about whether VCs are disappointed or not, but what they really want is they want them to continue to do what they're doing. It's good for all of us, for public health, to have VCs investing in new companies that are innovating.
1: Yeah, that was, I guess, my one takeaway from my read of it this morning was it seemed to lack, I guess, a recognition of what the innovation cycle is for biopharma in in a lot of ways, at least sections of that innovation cycle, such that the returns that investors get from M&A oftentimes are then recycled back into new companies that then go on to develop new drugs.
3: And it also has a kind of primitive notion of, of the whole biopharma ecosystem and seems to suggest that all of the companies that start down the pathway to discover and develop drugs are capable and should be capable of bringing them to market. And th- that just isn't, isn't feasible.
0: Well, I, I guess I'll dry my tears for our VC friends there. Let's change gears, Steve. This is something you've been reporting on for a few weeks now, We now have patient groups and medical product developers calling on President Biden to quickly nominate a permanent FDA commissioner. Many are taking sides in a competition that seems to have boiled down to two candidates. No surprise here. Janet Woodcock, she has been named the acting commissioner, and Joshua Sharfstein, who is no stranger to FDA, and he is currently the vice dean for public health practice, and community engagement at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Steve, what are you hearing here?
3: The advocacy around who Biden should nominate as FDA commissioner really is heating up. Patient groups and many biopharma companies are strongly backing Janet Woodcock. They believe she's going to promote innovation and patient-centered product development. She's been a senior official at FDA for longer than many of her critics have been alive. And over the years, she's made statements and decisions that some people oppose. The opposition to her has centered on the belief that FDA was too lax in approving opioids and far too slow in acting to address addiction, abuse, and overdose deaths, and that she's responsible for that because she was the director of CEDAR at the time. There are also concerns that have been raised about her positions and statements on emergency contraception and the approval of Sarepta's DMD drugs. Josh Sharfstein is supported by some of the groups that oppose Woodcock. They believe he'll take a stronger stand on opioids and have more of an arm's length relationship with industry. It isn't saying anything publicly, but behind the scenes, much of the biopharma industry is opposing his nomination. They're concerned that he would have an adversarial relationship w- with industry. I, I think it's also worth noting that President Biden and the people who are closest to him haven't spoken out publicly to say who he will nominate as FDA commissioner, and it isn't out of the question that there would be a third person. I think that the longer that this goes on, that groups take shots at Janet Woodcock and at Josh Sharfstein, the harder the people around President Biden are going to look at the idea of finding somebody else to lead the agency.
1: Steve, what's your opinion about how much a change between Woodcock or Sharfstein would impact If it boils down to, we all follow closely, how many new drugs, new chemical entities or new biological entities FDA approves every year. I mean, is there any reason to worry that if Sharfstein were appointed that you could actually start to see a decline there? Would he have that much of an impact?
3: No, and I don't think it's useful to take sides in, in the competition if there is one between the two of them. I don't think that there's any doubt that both of them are highly qualified to lead the FDA. There would be differences in Kind of philosophy between the two of them, but neither one of them is going to reach down and become involved in actual approval decisions. Neither one of them has the ability to control what applications get put in front of the FDA. I think that the whole idea that the FDA commissioner is responsible for how many new drugs get approved every year is an oversimplification to the point of absurdity of the role of the FDA commissioner.
0: And if you were a betting
3: man, Steve? I wouldn't bet on this. (laughs) I really wouldn't bet on it. Like I say, I think that there's a sense that the longer that this goes on without the president saying who he's going to nominate, the more difficult it could be for Janet Woodcock to be confirmed because it gives her opponents more time to rally opposition to her.
0: Interesting. And, and typically, the HHS secretary, I would imagine, has some say in who is picked. How about this time around?
3: You would think that would be the case, and maybe it should be the case. Historically, I'm not so sure that it really has been the case. It's really been a decision that the president has made, and the relationship between the HHS secretary and the FDA commissioner is often adversarial. We certainly saw that over the last year with Stephen Hahn. It was the case with Scott Gottlieb before him. It was the case with Peggy Hamburg. I'm not sure that the HHS secretary is going to get to pick or even have a big say in who the FDA commissioner is. Steve, what happens if Janet Woodcock isn't picked? What do you think happens to her? I don't know. I think that if she isn't picked and Josh Sharfstein gets the job, I think it's a fair bet that she wouldn't stay at FDA very long. The two of them have pretty different views on how the agency should be run and i don't think that it's likely that they would they would both be at the agency for long if someone else were to become commissioner then it isn't clear the person who has stepped into her shoes as acting cedar director is still acting i guess technically it's possible that janet woodcock could go back to cedar she could go into another position in the commissioner's office i think a lot of that would depend on on who the next commissioner is.
0: In my opinion, that would be a huge loss if she were to leave the agency, given the amazing amount of things she's done over her career at FDA. That's all we have time for this week. Josh and Steve, good luck shoveling snow. I know it's quite a storm you're facing out there in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. And don't forget, to register for our upcoming BioEquity Europe conference. Thank you.